morning. Be reading from John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Thank you, Jeff. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn to John 3, we'll, we'll be there. But we're going to be in several places that go along with our passages for uh, today. You know, um, you, you know you're getting old when... You uh, run into Chance back here, and I think he said, I think I talked to you in 2006, tells me that I'm old. And then when Jonathan and Stephanie and the kids show up, and I realize, that's been a long time that I've known that young man. Uh, He was probably one of the first youngsters I saw play soccer, knowing nothing about the sport and still not much. But, so for you, not that this is about Jonathan, Jonathan is uh, my mentor's uh, son. There's four kids, and he's the third down the rung. And, uh, and so he was in town some, I don't know, a couple few months ago and said, hey, let's go to dinner. You're go- you, you don't turn down a dinner, do you? No. So he said, hey, I think we're coming to church this morning, and we are glad to have he and Stephanie and the kids here. G. Elton Trueblood once said, never trust a theologian who doesn't have a sense of humor. And since all God's people have words to say about God, we need to hear Trueblood's dictum. And some of us, though, some of us grew up with such a view of reverence that we dared not to evoke laughter. Contrary to that experience, Trueblood, who was born in 1900, long before Comedy Central, Believe that if we paid more attention to Jesus' humor, we'd be all the more taken in by his teachings. 
For example, Jesus' response to Nicodemus, what Jeff just read, the one that says this, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things is probably best understood as irony. Imagine that, Nicodemus. You're supposed to be someone who teaches all of Israel and you don't know? Would you pray with me? Lord God, if we modern folks, our contemporary culture have a patron saint, surely it is Nicodemus. We always seem positioned to ask, how can these things be? So convinced are we in our senses that we find it hard to hear what you say to us. So this morning, this morning we ask you to give us ears to hear what you said as if you were saying it to us for the first time. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people say. You know, we love zero to hero stories. I mean, maybe we want someone to tell us how to go from zero to hero. We, we need those self-help books. Someone has recently remarked that, that if self-help books worked, they wouldn't be the largest category at Barnes & Noble. You keep wanting it. They keep printing it, you keep buying it, and we all come away feeling like we're still just a bunch of zeros. Maybe, maybe on the other hand, you, you know someone who went from zero to hero and you're like, how did that happen? Like, I know, I know lots of stuff about them. It's not possible that they could have gone from nothing to what they are today. We we have this question, as we mentioned with the children, always on cue. How can these things be? Take Trevor Noah, for instance. If you listen to this summary description of his first memoir titled, Born a Crime, see if you can hear the staging of his zero-to-hero story. Trevor Noah, it goes, Noah's unlikely path from apartheid South Africa to the desk of The Daily Show began with a criminal act, his birth. Trevor was born to a white Swiss father and a black kosher mother at a time when such a union was punishable by five years in prison. Living proof of his parents' indiscretion, Trevor was kept mostly indoors for the earliest years of his life. Bound by the extreme and often absurd measures his mother took to hide him from a government that could at any moment steal him away. Now, if you're unfamiliar with who is Trevor Noah, the most popular or famous African comedian, you probably are more familiar with Beth Moore. Right? I mean, after all, for... The vast majority of her life, she was the best-selling Lifeway Bible study teacher curriculum person on the planet. We won't go into detail why she is no longer that. But before she became one of the most famous Bible study curriculum teachers in the history of Lifeway, what used to be the Baptist Sunday School Board, she describes herself as a spindly little girl from Arkadelphia, Arkansas. 
In her recently published memoir, All My Not Enough Life, All My Not Enough uh, Easy for Me to Say on a Sunday Morning, All My Knotted Up Life, she writes, All my knotted up life, I've longed for the sanity and simplicity of knowing who's good and who's bad. And from there, she spends the first number of chapters in her memoir talking about her childhood. And before moving on to some of the weightier things that may happen in her life, she she concludes about her knotted up life. This was not theological. It was strictly relational. God could do whatever He wanted with eternity. I was just trying to make it here in the meantime. And what I thought would help me, she writes, what I thought would help me make it was for people to be one thing or the other, good or bad. In the next paragraph, take my dad's grandmother, Miss Ruthie, for example. And I'll leave that cliffhanger there for you to decide if Aunt Miss Ruthie was good or bad. But you can see that for her, this spindly little girl from Arkadelphia, whose first house was on the hill sharing a bed with a grown adult, not getting her room with her sister until they moved on into town, she frames her story as just an ordinary little girl. And we know what happened in that story. We don't get so much material when we read about Sarah in the Old Testament. In fact, in Genesis 11, the narrator introduces Sarah this way. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. That's a fancy introduction with lots of detail. She gets one verse all to herself. One verse is a setup to anything we might know about her. Now, Sarah was barren. She had no child. Zero. None. Sandwiched between the chronicling of about ten generations, talking all about the men and all the children and daughters that they've had, the boys and the girls, Sarah's noted for merit being the wife of Abram. And as if to say... Wait for the story to unfold, the narrator says, she was barren. So when we start Genesis 12, which is our Old Testament reading for today, when we begin there in chapter 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing That single verse, the the verse referencing Sarah, tells us the one thing about Sarah that now makes the promise that God made an obstacle. That is, her condition became an obstacle immediately preceding the announcement of a promise. It's as if God didn't know she was barren. Just decided to include that little detail, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, first... 1 chapter 12, God brings Abraham a promise that will require not a barren womb, but a productive womb. What did, what did Abram do when he heard God said? Well, the text says, and he went. He 
went. We're really sophisticated people. We have de-enchanted our world to such a degree because we know everything. We know how everything works. We know the reason for everything. We know the meaning for everything. And so when we read Genesis 1, we hear, and God said, let there be, and immediately we're like, well, how can this be? I mean, how can this be that a voice could say, let there be? I mean, we're too smart for that. We're too sophisticated that. We're too knowing for all of that. That is just old fairy tale stuff. And God said. So stuck are we on the mechanics of how it happened that we forget that the narrator doesn't care that we know how it happens. The narrator wants us to know who did it? Did you ever pay attention? Did you notice that? The, the, the narrator who gives us creation is not concerned at all to give us the details of how it happened, but the import is who did it? God said. If you want to spend your life answering questions you never will, be my guest. But the scriptures really want us to know who, not how. How generally means we'd like to reproduce what we have discovered. We can do that. And we can do that better than God can. And it's this phrase, God said, that ties Genesis 12 to Genesis 1. The God who created out of nothing speaks to the pagan Abram and tells him what he's going to do for him. Out of the barren womb of your wife, God will. Out of your preconditions, out of the circumstances that all the odds are against you, God will. Why? How do we know? God said. God said God said, let there be. Abram, if you spend any time reading his story, you find out that you don't get a descriptor like you do with Noah. And Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. You go, don't get that anywhere with Abram. I mean, and he's such a pivotal character in the grand narrative of God's story. And yet we don't get anything about his character we don't get that he waved at God and got God's attention. We don't get anything that he happened to live in a particular way that lent himself to be a great father of a great nation. There, there wasn't really any indication, anything about him other than that he was the son of 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 Seth. Hundreds of years ago, who's Seth? Seth is one of the three sons that accompanied Noah on the ark. One of the two sons involved in covering Noah's shame after having gotten drunk celebrating recovery on dry land. Ten generations later, hundreds of years separating Shem and one of Noah's sons. And God said, God has said all along, God said, let there be. God said to Noah, build an ark. And God said to Abraham, it's time to pick up and leave. God said. 
And what we want to know is how can these things be? That's our question. Not who is the God who speaks. We want to know how does it happen? Now, I confess, this sermon is for me. You just happen to get to hear it. The son of an engineer always wants to know how things work. I dabble with many electrical devices trying to figure out how they worked as a kid. I could take them apart but never put them back together. Never. I didn't know enough. But the inquisitiveness of it was, how does this thing work? I want to know how it works. It is our question. And I think it's a distraction. How does it work? is not as significant as who is working. There has been a a lot of debate uh, uh, over what's gone on, and we mentioned it last week at Asbury College. Uh, A fellow who pastors the uh, Council Road Baptist Church, went to college with, didn't know one another terribly well, but Rick, he... Uh, posted out a a little thing that said, let's take a stock of what's happened in February. And he strings several things together to say, you know, is it possible God might be up to something? His last thing in the deal was this movie coming out, Jesus Revolution. I I haven't seen it. I I think it might be worth seeing. It's the story of Chuck Smith or part of the story of Chuck Smith. But the things he chronicled were all indicators that God maybe is doing something And our question, the question that has been tossed around everywhere is, how did this happen? Those with ears to hear are saying, well, what is it saying about the who? What's it saying about who is doing something? How can these things be is our operative question. And what we discover in response in the Old Testament is that God said, Like we mentioned last week with um, Robert Jensen, we discover that God talks a lot. God wants to bless the world, but we humans, we prefer self-determination and self-reliance. I mean, don't forget that the story of Abraham begins after Babel. What What was going on in Babel? Okay, God, we'll take it from here. You kind of got the riffraff out of the way, and we're kind of all collectively getting together, and we're pretty smart. We know everything. We can build a tower to get to you. We'll take over from here. We'll get it all done. That didn't work out so well. Some say it's just an explanation of how human beings scattered across the planet may be. But what it says is, is, is that God's not interested in us making our way up to him. The story is God making his way down to us. So if we're building a tower to God, our own towers as it were, we're going to miss God on the way up because God's on his way down. The story's about always about God wanting to be here with us. Here, God said. Rather than accept that God wants to be with us, We just seem to always be on our way somewhere. We think we might reach God upwardly. I think we're hard of hearing. God said, and we seem to not hear it at all. 
The question, how can these things be, takes on a different meaning. I mean, given that God desires fellowship with humans, conversation, partners, dialogue dates, if you will, what is it that we cannot accept that God said represents that God wants to bless us here? And I don't mean bless as so you can accumulate more. I mean bless by being with you. You see, we think blessing and the signs and symbols of blessings are having things, achieving things, accomplishing things. And what God said to Abram was, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be with you. That's what I want. We keep making it about so much more, about much, what much more we can have, what much more we can do. And the blessing of God is the realization that God wants to be with you with us. That's what God said. So we read Genesis and hear God say, let there be and there was. God said to build an ark for rain would fall and it did. God said to Abram, go and he did. What God said to Abram is what the apostle Paul refers to as the promise of God. And that gets us to our New Testament reading, our Romans scripture in chapter 4. I mean, at least three times in the Abram narrative, three times in the Abram narrative, God tells Abraham he's going to keep his promise. He tells him in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. And along the way, he increasingly gives Abraham the indication that he is going to do what he said he's going to do. Now, either Abraham was hard of hearing like we are, or, or, Abraham had encounters along the way, and along the way he was challenged to believe the promise, and so God reminded him all along the way. He couldn't see what was coming. He couldn't see even what he was doing, and from time to time his experiences overwhelmed him, and what was he to do? But God came to him and kept his promise here, here, and here. God said he would And the pivotal moment for the Apostle Paul in giving Abraham a key role in an explanation about who is it that can be saved? Who is it that can be justified? He gives us Abraham. Abraham believed God, the Scripture says, and it is reckoned to him, was reckoned to him for righteousness in our parlance, in our way of saying things. When Abram expressed his trust that God was going to keep his promise, Abram was experiencing salvation. In our reading from Romans there, Paul writes these words. It's toward the end of our particular passage that ended in verse 17. For this reason it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants. Now hear me, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abram. For he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. A call back to Genesis 17. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul takes the experience of Abraham with a barren wombed wife, gives him a promise that requires her to have a child, repeats it three times, waits some 20 years, 
and fulfills the promise, the promise kept. And Paul's reference to the adherents of the law are and those who share the faith of Abraham is a way of saying Jews and Gentiles. No ethnic divide for the Apostle Paul when it comes to who may be included in God's great work of salvation. It's all of us, he says. Not just those who came later and not those who were here early. All of us, he says. For Abraham was before the law was given. And the adherents came after Moses. All Gentiles, Jews. And listen, Paul's not content to argue that the promise of God is for, for all. He wants Christians in Rome, and we today to hear that God's promise is kept when Jesus was raised from the dead. Why the last verse of chapter 4 was omitted from the reading, I don't know. I don't set those. But we, re- we can read it all, by the way just because we have passages in the Bible for next Sunday's sermon topics, you or sermons, you can read more and beyond all that's in there. It's just a suggestion to get started. There's plenty of there to read, to occupy, to keep busy, or to hear God say something to us. But here as he closes his argument, Paul does something fascinating. He spends almost the entire chapter talking about Abraham. And then in one quick turn, he makes Abraham the secondary actor in the entire point of the story. He he makes the point that Abraham is the one who trusted God, trusted the promise. He trusted in the one who could raise the dead and call into existence the things that are not. And then he concludes chapter 4. By talking about the one in whom Abraham believed is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, if we're not paying careful attention in that quick moment, in that instance, Paul says, you've got Abraham figured out, but I want to tell you who I'm talking about. I'm talking about what God has given to us in himself, in Jesus The one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence, the things that do not exist. And in this way, in this way, Paul is doing what we have been emphasizing. It's not the how, but the who. And the who that makes us or helps us to recognize or helps us to hear that God wants to be with us is God, very God, who is Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Paul wants to make clear what the promise of God means to us. How can these things be? They come by the faithfulness of the one who came to be with us, and that gets us right back to John 3 and Nicodemus. All the way back now, full circle. Our patron saint our patron saint who hears God say, and we wonder, how can this be? And God says, maybe even to us today, you mean you've got a Bible? You mean you have fellowship with a congregation? You? You don't know these things? Take some time, he says, and... 
let's see what happens when you spend time with the one who is God with us. We're not sure exactly what happened to Nicodemus, but there is an indication that by the time we get to the burial that Nicodemus may have been involved in some way. He may not have gotten it the first time, but when he stayed with all of his questions and all of his doubts and all of his how it can be, the one thing he could not avoid is who Jesus is. And neither can we. So when Jesus explains to him that verse that has become maybe the first memory verse some of you ever learned, for God so loved the world, we should remember that the who of Jesus culminates in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. It is not ours to carry on the uh, manner of condemnation when we have been given the good news of grace. So we tell the world, I don't always know how, but I know who. And I put my trust in the one who said. Would you pray with me?